Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the James McDonald Podcast, where we say love to live to love. That's our focus, that's our passion, and we invite you to let God's Word have that impact in your life right now. Here's Pastor James. How many people would be surprised to know that when I was young and in school, I made fairly frequent trips uh, to the principal's office? How many people surprised to know that? Thank you. I have a friend or two here. And uh, I can, did you, did you go to the principal's office too? Yeah. You, you're the kind of guy that really bugged me. Did you guys go? How many people went to the principal's office? That was me. And very freaky sitting outside there. That guy has so much authority and here he comes and what's going to happen? And, and uh, I remember working one time when I was younger, I worked at a gas station for a while and, and the boss didn't like some things I was doing and I was told by one of the workers, he's coming in, the owner, and he's going to be in the back, you're going to have to talk to him. And I just remember the ominous sense of, dun, 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 dun. here it comes, you know. And, um, but I think the time I've had that feeling more than any other time in my life, I told you a few years ago about when Kathy and I went to, uh, were invited to uh, give an opening prayer for an address that President Bush was giving in downtown Chicago. The part that I never told you about was after I did the prayer part and the whole thing was over, I had to um, go and wait in line to actually meet the president. And I was really surprised how freaked out I was. I was so nervous, heart pounding, lump in your throat, you know, I'm going to meet the president. Kathy, not, not so much at all. And here's a picture of when we actually uh, met the president and uh, President Bush. And, um, but what was really interesting, obviously I didn't make a very good impression because when the picture came uh, of it, the picture came from the White House, all it said on the bottom was, to <laughs> Kathy McDonald, best wishes. <laughs> Is that funny? See right there? I was like, yeah, he was not very fired up about me. <laughs> yeah, I've had that experience my whole life. But um, those were some of the illustrations that came to mind when I began to think and pray this week about the reality that's before us. Um, in the message today, we're going into the throne room of God. And this isn't what somebody thinks, oh, I died, I think I might have gone to heaven. Wait, I'm not dead yet, here's what I saw. No, no, this is God himself revealing to us, Jesus Christ appearing to John, revealing to him, this is what it's like. So just let that kind of well up in your heart a little bit as we um, start with a word of prayer. Let's all bow uh, together in prayer. Father, we uh, are awed by the reality that you invite us to understand what it's like, what goes on uh, in your very presence even this moment. And we pray that you would give to us such a sense of reverence and respect, such a heart realization of the privilege that it is to approach your throne we thank you for the grace and mercy of Christ without which that experience would be impossible. And we praise and worship you today and pray that you would stir within our hearts a sense of how great you are and how small we are and how well things go when we keep those two viewpoints as our reality. This we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, title the message today, um, How to Approach Heaven. 
So we're going to do that and um, how to approach heaven. Jot this down first. Uh, come and see. Uh, really incredibly startling. Uh, God is welcoming. You believe that? I mean, really just blows me away. Uh, it's right in the text. You'll see why I said that. Uh, chapter 4, Revelation 4, 1. Um, after this, now that's the phrase after this chosen by John to indicate progress uh, in the narrative. So as we go through uh, the book of Revelation, I want you to kind of put a box around uh, after this. Have you figured out that it's cool to write in your Bible yet? Have you figured that out? All right, all right, it's not a problem. We don't worship the Bible, we learn from it, right? You got that? That's important. So go ahead and just kind of circle that in your Bible after this, and then keep your finger there and look back at chapter one, verse 19, where it says, this is kind of the outline for the whole book. It's very simple, 119. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The things that uh, you have seen was chapter one. Uh, the things that had already been written down, now they're written down. The things that are, that was the seven churches, representing churches of all time. And now, and those things that are to take place after this, box that in in your Bible, after this. That phrase is gonna take us in chapter seven, verse one, it occurs again, and in chapter 15, verse five, and then beginning chapters 18, 19, and 20, right in the first verses of those chapters, transition points as we move through and start to head toward now, everything that is future. All the stuff that was in your head when we said we were gonna study Revelation, chapter four and five is the transition to that, and in chapter six in January, we're going to be on it, on it. After this, a door standing open. That phrase is um, in a certain tense in the original language that the one seeing the door open did not open the door. Who opened the door to heaven? God the Father opened the door uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. And I just, I don't want to just rush over that, all right? The door to heaven is open. The way is open to God. A personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ is available, all right? Everyone say the door is open. That's awesome, all right? There'd be no Christmas, there'd be no celebration, there'd be nothing great going on if the door wasn't open, all right? And God himself opened the door. You didn't open the door. You, you, you weren't like, oh, I think I'll go open the door. You didn't open nothing, okay? Sorry about that. You, 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 you hold up the universal symbol for what you contributed. Okay, correct, nothing, and, and God did it all. Notice, after this, a door standing open in heaven. This is the first mention in Revelation, and now we'll hear about it frequently. The future home for all who have been saved from the consequences of their sin through faith in Jesus Christ, all right? The way is open to heaven. You can go and spend eternity in heaven because of what Jesus Christ, stop, time for the gospel. Ready for the gospel? Never wanna get tired of hearing the gospel. As I study the word, I, I think to myself, I love the people in our church, and I know that there are people here every weekend who have not believed the gospel, and I'm always looking for a chance in the sermon to stop and give the gospel. How many people wanna hear the gospel? All right, here it is. Um, I'll use Romans 6.23 today. Many verses could be used. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Do you have a job? That's, that's not to be presumed upon these days, right? Thankful for your job, I bet. Okay, do you get a paycheck? Okay, those are your wages. Your wages are what you get for what you do. And the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages for your sin, or what you're gonna get paid for what you've done, the wages for sin is, lift up your voice, it's? Death. 
The wages for sin is death. And that's not talking about physical death, because that wouldn't exactly be a revelation. Everyone's going to die physically. It's talking about the second death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God, hell. That's what it's talking about. And what we all get for what we've done is death, but, one of the greatest buts in the whole Bible, but... The wages of sin is death, but the, this is why, that's why Christmas, that's why we have Christmas. This is what we're all fired up about. We're decorated the church. We're just all jacked about the but. The wages of sin is death, but, everyone say it, what? But, but the gift of God, it's a gift. Going to give some gifts this Christmas? How do you get a gift? Yeah, if someone gives it to you, but what do you got to do to make it yours? You got to do that right there. Now here's the question. Have you done that in regard to Christ? Have you taken the gift? It's not yours because you've heard of it. It's not yours because you know about it. As many as have received him, John 1:12 says, to those he has given the authority to be called the children of God, to those who believe in his name. That's how you receive the gift. You got to believe. You got to accept the fact you're a sinner, ABC. You have to believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins and you have to confess him personally as your savior. All right? Have you done that? If you haven't, do it now, man. How, how often have you left a gift unopened under the tree? And yet the greatest gift that's ever been given, have you opened it and made it your own? Do that now. After this, I saw a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, look at the text 4-1, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me I love that. The first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Remember in chapter one, verse 10, where he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and behold, I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. Now, I, you guys have been listening to me for a while and, and y'all are here every week. Could, do you think you'd recognize my voice if I was really intense? And would you also recognize my voice if I was just talking tenderly to you? Well, it's obviously how much more the voice of Christ. And what John is saying here is, I, it's the same voice, but it's, it's different, but it's the same person. He says, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, but now with a different tone, so welcoming. The heaven, the door open, and Jesus says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. I love the invitation, come up here. The voice John had heard so powerful and so penetrating, so urgent and strong, like a trumpet that it made his heart pound, now bids him come so warmly. Come up here and I will show you, like a little tour. And uh, when somebody comes into your house and you've known them for a long time, do you sometimes give people a little tour? Just here's our dining room, here's our kitchen, here's, we're glad you're here and we don't want you to feel not at home, so just let me just show you a bit of our house. Now let's get down to business. And beginning in chapter six, we're gonna get down to business. But chapter four and five is a little John seeing heaven where it's all going on, where God the Father is running out his exact human history as he planned and determined it would be. And he's like, well, before we get down to all that, let me just kind of show you around a bit. But the main things he's gonna show him is not a tour of heaven. The main things he's gonna show him are the things, the future events. Notice the things that must take place. Another really important word. I will show you the things, not the things that can take place, not the things that will take place, but the big picture hinge events. Everything swings on these major God-ordained happenings. And that's what we're going to be studying for the rest of the year. The major God-ordained happenings. 
things that I believe are already unfolding. It's, I can't wait to get to January, really. But God in his wisdom has given us chapter 4 and 5 to have a rightfully awe, uh, respectful view of him. Before we begin to hear what's happened, we're going to get a fresh view of the one who's going to make it happen. I will show you the things that must take place after this. There's that word again. It began the verse. It ended the verse. After this. After this. I'll show you the things that must take place after this. After what? After I give you a tour of heaven. Jesus himself, the tour guide. And so John reports at once, verse 2, I was in the spirit. Now this is not the rapture, okay? Some people say, well, the door of the heaven was open. This is the rapture. This is the rapture. Some of you, if you look in your study Bibles, sorry, cross that part out. The notes are not inspired. And some of them are like, this is the rapture. We we need to hope it isn't the rapture because number one, only John went. A rapture for one. That'd be, how many people would be a little disappointed if the whole thing was just for John? Now that would be a little disappoint me a little bit. Um, secondly, it would have already happened because that part's rooted in time. It's when he got the vision. This isn't the rapture. He didn't even physically go. He was in the spirit. Now this is not filled with the spirit like Galatians 5, walk in the spirit. Ephesians 5, be filled with the spirit. It's not talking about that. This is like uh, almost an altered state. He said it in chapter 1. And when he says that, by the way, that kind of breaks up the book also. Um, if By the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation, you're going to understand that John could not have taken all this in one sitting. Okay? There were some time gaps, and he's sewn it all together for us into one book. But it came in various visions that Jesus Christ revealed to him. And chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 was the first one. He said in chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And now he tells us again, there was a gap in time. This is the second vision of the book of Revelation. And after this, at once I was in the Spirit. That's a key. We'll see that phrase again as we go through the book. Uh, In the Spirit, in the Spirit, in the Spirit. Four more times we'll see that. He was in a a trance-like state where visions can occur. I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. There it is. Throne, throne. Um, It's interesting. Um, A few years ago, uh, when we were on a sabbatical, someone graciously provided for our family to, we went and spent one, we were overseas. Abby was in second grade, Landon in fourth grade, Luke in sixth grade. Seems like a long time ago. And uh, we were, uh, in Paris for one day. And so what do you go see when you're in Paris? Well, we had to go see the, what do you call that big museum? The Louvre. I had to go see the Louvre. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, we're not big museum people, but this is the most famous museum in the whole world. So we were there for like 10 minutes. And, and uh, okay, so you, you all are smart. Um, not big museum people, not big art people, but if you're gonna go to the Louvre, what's the one thing you gotta see? Thank you. Everyone knows that. So we get in the thing. We're just like, where's the Mona Lisa? Down the hallway, down the hallway, down some stairs, up some stairs, around, around. Bam! Mona Lisa. Seen it. Let's get out of here. <laughs> and that's what we did at the Louvre. Sorry if that causes you. I know that's pretty lame, but that's the truth. And, and uh, I think I'm kind of like John in this, you know? Uh, no up and down the streets of gold. No, hey, let's see some of the mansions you've been working on. Nothing like that. Straight to the throne room, man. Just take me to the throne. That's what I want to see. And, and so they get right at it. No touring the outer courts of heaven. When you get to heaven, who do you want to see? I love that. That's exactly what it is. I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne stood. 
Picture this furnishing as fixed through all eternity, past, present, and future. That throne doesn't jiggle, it doesn't wiggle, it doesn't drift, it doesn't wander. It's standing firm. And then God, what's he doing? God the Father, one, what's it say? Seated on the throne. What's he sitting down for? Why is he sitting down? Uh, because he can. Uh, here's a better question. What would he get up for? God's not pacing back and forth. God's not wringing his hands. God's never wiped sweat off his brow. I'm kind of fond of saying God rules the universe with his feet up. All right. And, and I, every chance time I get a chance to say that, I say it because I love that picture. He's on it. He's on the throne. He's, it's all going awesome. You say, but there's just things happening that, uh, that aren't great. Right. And he's going to use those too. He's not stressed or strained in any way. But he's welcoming. At once I was in the spirit and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. A ruler's throne is the symbol of their authority. More glorious throne equals more glorious ruler. Just notice a couple of the references about God's throne. Number one, God's throne is in heaven. Psalm, Psalm 11, 4. Psalm 11, 4 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. God's throne is surrounded by angels. The prophet Micah said, 1 Kings 22, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing behind him on his right and on his left. Actually, other places in scripture uh, tell us that he is surrounded by myriads of myriads of angels, 10,000s of 10,000s, an innumerable number of angels surrounding him and in his presence, waiting to do his bidding. That's awesome. Thirdly, God's throne is in heaven. It's surrounded by angels. God's throne is holy. Psalm 47, 8 states, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. It's separate. It's not like anything else. Fourthly, God's throne is majestic. Daniel tells us, I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Daniel 7, 9, and 10. God's throne is eternal. Psalm 45, 6, and Hebrews 1, 8 say the same thing. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Interesting, Satan also has a throne. Revelation 13, 2, the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. So there are two thrones. The God of this world has a throne and the God of the universe who created him has a throne. One day, one of the thrones is going to fall. And the other will stand and always stand through all of eternity. A ruler's throne is the symbol of his authority. More glorious the throne, more powerful the ruler. And God's throne is utterly beyond comparison. Get this. He is unrivaled. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. This is the God of the universe. Who is like you, O God? Majestic in holiness, awesome, working wonders. God's on the throne. Sometimes Christians will say this. Trouble comes and we'll say, he's on the throne, man. He's on the throne. What else do you need to know? This is awesome. This is it. We're not speaking pious platitudes when we say to one another, I'm sorry. But remember this. God is on the throne. Let's say that together. Lift up your voice and say it. He's on the throne. Incredibly, 
He's welcoming. Here's a second thing. Come and see God is welcoming. Moving into verses, it should be verse 3, correction in the notes. Verses 3 through 7. Come and know. Come and know that God is awesome. Now, years ago, I was uh, teaching a series here in the church called Gripped by the Greatness of God. Some of you have studied it in Bible study. Some of you were here when, when I did that series. And one of the points that I made in that series pretty strongly was that um, awesome is a really important word. I mean, when I say that God is awesome, I mean he is jaw-dropping, mind-blowing, knee-buckling, life-altering, awesome. All right? And... and so, if you're ever around me very much, and I hear you say the word awesome, pretty quickly I'm going to be like, only God is awesome, okay? So I'm like, dude, these cookies are awesome. No, they're not. No, no, they're not. Only God is awesome. And then, oh, dude, you got to see my car. It's awesome. No, it's stupid, okay? Only God is awesome. And, and casual comments should not contain the word awesome, all right? We got to save some words for church, man. We got to save some words for church. And if you spend awesome on a lot of dumb stuff, you're going to get to church, and I'm going to be saying God's awesome, and you're going to be like, oh, cool. No, no, no. Awesome! Jaw-dropping, mind-blowing, knees-buckling, life-altering, awesome! God is awe-producing. Notice in the text, and he who sat there, God the Father, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. Jasper actually is kind of like a quartz. These terms have changed through the centuries and it's not always clear exactly what they had in mind. Revelation chapter 21 verse 11 helps us with Jasper because it says it's like crystal, as clear as crystal, Revelation 21 11 says. And so I'd suggest to you that Jasper is the ancient term for diamond. And that what we're being told here is he who sat there had the appearance of a diamond. The idea that light we know many times in scripture is coming out from the presence of God. That light, you don't get to see God himself, but you see the light that emanates from his presence. No one can see God and live, the scripture says. He's not the, an old man with a white beard. He's not the man upstairs. He's ineffable glory, the Bible says. He dwells in unapproachable light. Our God is a consuming fire, the Bible tells us. No one can see God and live. And that's why he says, for, for, for what I could see, his appearance was like a diamond, and then carnelian is like a reddish brown, uh, not quite orange, but not quite ruby. Carnelian, it's a beautiful picture. Interestingly, diamonds and rubies were two of the things on the breastplate of the high priest. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Like, what, what, rainbows aren't green. So I tried to kind of put that together in my mind. So, so something shaped like a rainbow, maybe striped like a rainbow, but what color's an emerald? Green. And so you have this massive light producing like a diamond and this emerald rainbow around the presence of God and, and uh, colors are so beautiful, aren't they? 
And Kathy and I were, uh, uh, just a little while ago, we were in New York City with uh, Greg and Kathy Laurie, our friends, and some other pastor and wives. And one of the men that we didn't know as well had brought a friend with him from Dallas who uh, uh, years ago had dispensed of a friend's estate at this place they called Christie's. Have you heard about that? Apparently they sell the wealthiest things in the world in this auction place in Manhattan called Christie's. So the man said, well, let's go over there and, and, and look over there. So we're like, yeah, we're just kind of walking around. That sounded fun and we'd seen the Christmas tree and everything. So we get there and one of the things, have y'all ever heard of these things called Tiffany lamps? How many people have heard of those? Wow. Wow, never heard of that. And, and apparently, Louis Tiffany, the son of the founder of Tiffany's more than 100 years ago, fashioned these lamps that were very uh, unusual for their time, not made of painted glass, but actually the intricate pieces of glass were that exact color. Now, these lamps were beautiful, I'll tell you. And, um, and you ought to get one uh, for your wife for Christmas. Um, <laughs> Uh, last week, one sold um, for over a million dollars. Here's a picture of the, some of the lamps. And I had to, it was hard, but I just had to say, sorry, Kath, not this year, honey. It's just not in the budget. <laughs> but um, now think about the, the beauty of just some colored glass and then imagine that, that jewels themselves sized beyond imagination is the description of the throne room where God our Father is right now. And then notice in the text that he's like, had the appearance of, and it was the appearance of, it reminds me of Ezekiel chapter one where Ezekiel was seeing the very same scene and he was like, it had the likeness of the appearance, he says it like 10 times, and what I saw had the likeness of the appearance of a sort of a, a dude, that's it, that's the best you could, it was sort of like, a, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was awesome. It was indescribable, that's what it was. I, I couldn't even tell you what it was. I've never seen anything like it. The best I could do is it was, it was sort, of, sort, of, sort of like a bit of a, um, uh, uh, <laughs> It was God. I saw it. He's awesome. I was in the spirit and behold, the throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of the emerald. And he's like, uh, uh, I can't, I can't. Same as in Isaiah six. He's like, he says a bit and he's like, let me tell you about the angels. And he kind of gives up on describing the throne of God and God himself. And he's like, let me tell you about the elders. I can tell you about that. And around the throne, look in verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones. We don't get any description of those less than the throne of God, I am sure. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. I like that. We're going for more elders here at Harvest. And so that made me feel good. More is better. More authority surrounding. And a lot of people are like, well, who are these 24 elders? Some say that they're angels. Sorry. Angels fly in the Bible. They don't sit. They serve. Um, some say that they represent the Old Testament priestly ranks. First Chronicles 24, 7 and 18 talks about 24 priestly ranks. That, that's possible, I guess. Um, here's my thing. Um, 
Just keep right where you are in the text, but just look back for a moment to the letters that we studied. Chapter 3, verse 21 Jesus promises, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And then the letter before that, chapter 3, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Chapter 3, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown. All right, so back to the chapter 4 then. Tell me about these elders. Seated on a throne, white garments, crowns on their heads. These are Christians. These are saints, not saints like weird medieval bow down and kiss the saint saint, but New Testament biblical, every follower of Jesus Christ is a saint. You're a saint. Don't let anyone tell you any different. You're a saint. You're a saint. You're a saint. We all are. Not because not having a righteousness of our own, Paul said, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Just turn to your neighbor and say, it'll be hard, but say it. Say, you're a saint. (laughs) She's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I started laughing. All right. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. Amen. That we're all saints. And, And Jesus said, he who overcomes, you'll get white garments and a crown and you'll sit on a throne. Uh, These are definitely believers, 24 of them. Some have suggested the 12 Old Testament saints who looked forward to the cross of Christ and the 12 apostles who were the first to look back. I'm fine for them to represent us. I'm not not expecting a throne, are you? No, no, I'm I'm fine to be in the crowd and, and you should be too. I'm thinking the 12 patriarchs, maybe the 12 apostles, but the bottom line is us, human beings representing us right there, ruling with Christ as is promised that. Everyone say, that's awesome. That's awesome for sure. I mean, for sure it is. But the thing I like about it best is, is they don't tell us who they are. So I'm not the smartest guy, but uh, we're not supposed to know who it is. That isn't the point. The point is the promises have been kept. That's the point. The assurances that have been given have been followed through by the one who cannot lie. The rewards have been given. And John is seeing what must take place, the future, and this is the beginning. The first sight is God has made good on everything he promised. And there are the 24 representing all of us in their reward. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, or some translations say roars or peals of thunder. It's hard to describe that. Let's just hear it. coming continually from the throne of God. And then uh, notice, well, just before I move on from that, how many people can uh, name a song that we sing at Harvest that has that exact phrase, uh, flashes of lightning, roars of thunder? What song is that? Revelation song, right. Here's uh, Meredith uh, just singing a little clip of it. Isn't it awesome? We don't realize how often we're singing the word of God back to him. Clothed in rainbows of living color, flashes of lightning, roars of thunder. It might interest you to know that 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 phrase, flashes of lightning, roars of thunder, becomes a uh, division point in the book of Revelation. 
after the seventh seal is opened. We're going to learn all about that, the seals. After the seventh seal is opened, chapter 8, verse 5, there are flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. After the seventh trumpet sounds in eleven nineteen, there are flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. After the seventh bowl is opened in chapter 16, verse 8, we're going to go through all of this. There are flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder as God meets out the justice that the world is crying out for. And then notice, from the throne, there were seven, there were burning seven torches. Some of your translations say lamps. It's actually, the Greek is lampas, from which we get our word lamp, but not electric lamps. There's a flame in them for sure. Lamps or lights or torches of fire, a symbol of the judgment that is about to begin. But here also a symbol of the seven spirits of God. We've talked about this in a previous message that seven is the picture of fullness. The seven spirits are the seven, the fullness of God's spirit before his throne. Revelation, or pardon me, Isaiah 11, two is the reference that I gave you there. That talks about the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold fullness, not seven spirits, but the one Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity in all of his fullness. Verse 6, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The Crystal Sea right out there in front of, made me think of Epcot Center actually. How many people have ever been to Epcot Center? And, and what's, what's that lake in the middle of it called? Anyone know? All right, for the purpose of this message, we'll call it Lake Epcot. And <laughs> all the pavilions, Kathy and I were there a few years ago at Christmas with some friends of ours, and all around this lake in the center of Epcot are these beautiful world pavilions from every nation. And at Christmas, we went there and heard them singing the Hallelujah Chorus, a choir. Did they know what they were singing? We knew what they were singing. And, and as they sang the Hallelujah Chorus and all the Christmas lights from all the pavilions, it was awesome to look at the pavilions, but it was amazing to look at the lake. As all of the light reflected off of the lake, it was like a double, everything was like, in, it was just an, uh, the word that comes to mind is awesome. And so there's this crystal sea before the throne of God that all that emanates from there reflects back like a mirror. And then notice, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. A lot could be said about these creatures, and a lot of ink has been spilt trying to figure out who are these creatures, and what do they represent. Um, I don't know. I think some people have reflected upon that. The reflections are interesting to me. Um, some have suggested that each uh, of them denotes the greatest of its kind. Notice the first like a lion, uh, the greatest among the wild beasts. The second like an ox the greatest of the domesticated animals. The third with the face uh, like a man, of course, the pinnacle of God's creation. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Uh, the idea there, of course, is that uh, an eagle is the mightiest among the birds. The strongest, 
Interesting, in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel chapter 1, he saw the same four things, uh, eagle, a lion, an ox, and a man. But the way that he saw the four beasts, he described each of them as having four faces, those same four faces. John, from his vantage point, says each had a different face. I'm thinking about that in my mind. Possibly, um, likely, the faces can rotate, or they were at such an angle that John's focus was on the differentness of each one, and he just said, yeah, those four different faces and a lot of eyes. Uh, to me, it's awesome the way the Scripture comes to us because those are so different in the way that they're described as to be obviously not contrived. If the Bible was contrived, someone would have copied the vision of Ezekiel, which had been in existence for a thousand years when John saw what he saw. So different enough so as to be not contrived, but similar enough so that we know they were all looking at the same reality. One saw four faces on each beast. The other saw the four different faces the same, but just said, and lots of eyes, like every face has. I, I just love that. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third creature with the face of a man, the fourth. What are they doing there? What are these creatures about? Some say they represent the attributes of God. What we know is, is that whatever they're about, they are continually worshiping the one who's seated on the throne. That's what you need to know. And we'll come to that. But first, turn the page as we head toward verse 8. Come and see God is welcoming. Come and know God is awesome. Come and bow. God is holy. Come and bow. God is holy. Notice in verse 8 it says, And they never cease to say, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say. Repetition in the, to the Hebrew shows force. They wouldn't say, man, how about that big storm we had this week? If it was a big storm, they wouldn't say, what a storm. They'd say, what a storm storm. That's what they would say. The repetition shows the force. So let your theology fill in the blank. What do they never cease to say in heaven? Some of you would say, well, they never cease to say that God is loving, loving, loving. And if that's what they said, that would certainly be true. Forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. And if that's what they said, that would be true. But not a single attribute of God chosen. Instead, the summation of all that he is. The Hebrew is Kadesh, Kadesh. The Greek, Hagias. It holy means separate, separate. Holy other, transcendent, transcendentally unlike any and all others. Jot this down. He stands in the solitude of himself. No one like him. No one. Who is like our God? No one. Again, the repetition shows the force. Notice that God is not holy. Notice that God is not holy, holy. Only thrice of this attribute. He is holy, holy, holy. Not in any way or respect like those he created. I didn't understand its importance at the time, but I look back very thankfully now that every Sunday morning service at the church that I grew up in began with 
Hymn 105, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Do you remember the verse? Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee. Casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Right from this passage. Holy, 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 it says. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee. That's an awesome hymn to an awesome God. Notice it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The word Lord God Almighty there is Pantocrator, ruler of all, mentioned in Amos 3 and 4. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this word, master of armies, Lord God Almighty, who was, oh yeah, he was, before your parents or ancestors, before America, before the Reformation, before the Middle Ages or the early church or Solomon or King David, before Samuel or Joshua, before Jacob or Isaac or Abraham, before Adam and Eve, God was. Who was and then notice who is. Right here, right now, all of us in his presence. His eyes are upon us. His ears are open to our cries. His hand upholds us. His spirit convicting of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Who was and is, who is to come. Who is to come. The greatest part of any story is the conclusion, right? We haven't even got to the ending yet. All right? But we're going to spend the rest of this uh, more to come in 2010. And we're going to get to the ending and, and all of the things that are going to unfold before human history comes to an end. And God himself will rise from the throne and set that in motion. Come and bow. The four living creatures, each of them, they bow. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. Come and bow. God is holy. They fall down before him. I got to ask you this question. Have you done that? Have you bowed the knee to your maker? Have you bowed? I'm telling you, life changes when you bow. Have you all seen this movie, Invictus, that's out? I haven't seen the movie, um, um, but I know a little bit. It's a very unfortunate title. It's the story of Nelson Mandela and some of the noble things that he's done. I, as I said, haven't seen it, but I know a lot about that word. The word Invictus is a Latin uh, for unconquerable. You would never want Invictus written across your life. You, you want, we want to be conquered by the maker of our souls. We don't want to be unconquered. A famous poem was written called Invictus. Unconquered. It's the poem that Timothy McVeigh read as he was led to his execution. Invictus. Unconquered. The poem is, out of the light that dazzles me, dark as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, 
my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, as in narrow road. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That should give you a shiver. Walking so blindly to an appointment that will alter his eternity. Unconquered. Come and bow. Come and bow. If you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, don't let this Christmas pass. He is your maker. Someday he will rule the world with a rod of iron. Nothing will bend his will. Today's the day that you can bow willingly. What an opportunity. You can choose to drop to your knee and confess his rulership over everything. Do it. How to approach heaven. Come and see God is welcoming. Come and bow. God is holy. Come and worship. God is worthy. Or pardon me. Come and bow. Welcoming. Awesome. Holy. And lastly, come and worship. Come and worship. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Come and worship. God is worthy. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. There's something intrinsically wrong with a finite beings being honored in the presence of the infinite. It just would seem to me that if you were one of the people that got picked to be on one of those thrones, you'd feel extremely uncomfortable. Least of all with that crown on your head. You'd want to get, a, and so not surprising it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, the 24 elders, oh, and, and when do they do that by the way? It's kind of a funny picture, it says they never cease to do it. They never cease to sing their song, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty was and is and is to come. They never stop singing their song and whenever they sing it, the 24 elders are like off with the crown, off with the throne and they cast their crown, throw it, balo. They throw their, as fast as they can, they get that at his feet and they fall down before him to worship him. They want to bow, they want to worship, he is worthy. Things as they were created to be. God elevated. Me humbled. That's what life's about. That's the best place you could possibly be. What we go through to get there, huh? What we put ourselves through to get to that place. What we put our loved ones through. Get there. Get there again. He's God, I'm not. Come and worship, God is worthy, worthy. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. It's an antiphonal chorus. They're shouting it back and forth. In fact, let's have the ladies represent the beautiful creatures. And let's have the men represent the elders. Ladies, lift up your voice now. Do it the first time. 
Sing the song. They're singing it in heaven right now. Ladies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Elders. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. And maybe you could take a moment and just reflect upon the manner of your life in regard to these things. Yes, God is welcoming and awesome and holy and worthy. So come and know and bow. So I hope that you've been really encouraged today through this clear teaching from God's word. I just want to thank you from the whole team for listening to the James McDonald podcast, where the learning is for loving, loving God and for loving others more and more until we see him face to face. Thank you for standing with us. Your prayerful support is our lifeline to continue this gospel partnership, and it makes podcasts like these possible. If you're not part of a vibrant, life-giving gospel church, check out this new alternative. It's called the Home Church Network. You can get it at homechurchnetwork.global. All the ministry information, Bible teaching, and and resources are there, and also at jamesmcdonaldministries.org. Hey, thank you again for listening.